Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Thumbs up? Yes. Excellent. Well, it's just wonderful. I love seeing all of your faces. I love seeing all of your chats from, from Holland, from Germany. I see Esther. Aaron, that, that's a new face. Arizona, I'm seeing everyone here. I just love it. I'm so happy to be with everyone and it's like perfect timing. We're starting a new chapter together. We're starting a new year together. This is our third year. Like we're starting a new chapter, a new semester. And we've been through a lot. I was trying to think, like, we started at like the height of a global pandemic. And we've been through Corona in American elections and Israeli elections and wars with the Ukraine. And I just like, we've been through a lot together. And we've learned a lot of Torah together. <laughs> and now it's time to take our game up a level. And now we're starting a new journey, at least on my side of the fellowship. And we're delving into the prophets of Israel. And I can't think of a better project we could be working on together, learning together. And if we just stay the course, who knows, we might just finish the entire Bible together. Imagine that. It's like the only global fellowship from so many people from around the world, all of us studying the Bible together. Like what an incredible thing to do. What else could we be doing better with our time than all of us coming together through this land, through this word, learning together and our prayer is always that what we learn in our minds, what we learn from the text, doesn't just stay an abstract idea, but our prayer is to really make our learning into our prayer. It's into our life. Like this should be our prayer. Our prayer is that the learning go into our hearts, into our lives, that it affect us, that it change us, that it guide us. And so I want to start off this uh, fellowship with just a prayer. All of us are here together, and it's just, we, we missed it last week because of Shavuot. And I absolutely felt a difference. When I don't have this weekly meeting, my life is different. When I do have this weekly meeting, my life is better. <laughs> Our prayers lift me up throughout the week. Our gathering lifts me up throughout the week. It's hard to understand. It's like some I'm like plugging in and I feel like you're plugging in. It's some connection that happens that is electrifying and gives me strength, courage, insight. It's just awesome. And so our secret weapon is our global prayer. I just don't know many people that have this opportunity to pray with so many people from so many backgrounds and bring it all together and transcend all the differences and in one land, in one heart, in one mind, come together and pray to Hashem. So Hashem, master of the world, Abba Tov, please look at us. This is our 99th session together and our fellowship is growing. Imagine 100 sessions. We'll be, we'll be entering deeper into your word. We'll be walking more in your light, your prophecy, your promise. Hashem, we don't want to just learn your promises. We want to live them. We want to dream with you. We want to live your dream and let your dreams come to fruition in this world. Help us connect to the highest parts within us and let us manifest that in the world. Help us take the Torah we learned today and bring it into our hearts, guide this fellowship, protect and bless every family here, the crazy ones who have come together because they love you, they're seeking after you, they want to connect to your land, they want to connect to your people, they want to learn your ways and walk in your path. And as you blessed Joshua, bless this fellowship with strength and courage as we all work toward inheriting your promise and as we all work toward building your kingdom. Amen. And so, amazing. We had a mission. You know, this fellowship has so many dimensions to it. On one hand, we learn together. 
On one hand, we pray together. On one hand, we're interconnected in ways that people from the fellowship are meeting each other. People come to Israel. They are staying at our farm. I'm going out to the United States. I'll be meeting with people. It's like um, uh, an organism that's growing and developing and becoming more complex and able to accomplish more and more in the world. And our, it's like a move that is becoming more um, sophisticated, stronger, greater. It's amazing. And so for the last two months, we put out a mission. We were trying to go and build out the infrastructure of the farm. We had hundreds of people that became uh, real supporters of the farm, people that we had never met before, people that I don't know who they are, because ambassadors from our fellowship went out and reached out to their circle of influence and their circle of influence. And all of a sudden now we have a whole new people that are now connected to our work in Israel, connected to our fellowship, and we reached more then half of this ends, I mean, was like, why is the goal so high? And I'm like, let's just reach for the stars. You never know. And so I want to just show you, this is the picture of the campaign that we just took down by this, like the campaign is over. If we could picture a picture of the campaign up, I don't know if you can see that, but we reached well over 50% of our goal. And that was just online. And so right now, I feel like I'm putting on my boxing gloves and I'm going back into the ring. I'm already right now setting up my speaking tour. I'm crossing the United States. What we've done virtually online, I'm going to continue the work inside the United States and beyond. I am thrilled with such an amazing success. I, in my dream, I quit. I just can't believe it. Hundreds of people. We have barely have cell phone reception on our farm. I was like an online campaign. Is that really going to work? I don't know. We don't really like a network where, how are we going to get out there? And by the grace of God, hundreds of thousands of dollars came in and we are going to be building up the Judean frontier. It's an absolute amazing accomplishment and we're just getting started. And so that's actually what I wanted to talk to you about before we actually get into the heart of it is that right now I'm setting up the rest of my speaking tour and some parts are set in stone. Some parts are still evolving and I'm just putting it out there to our fellowship because my goal is to meet as many people in our fellowship as possible. That's my goal. If I'm in your state, I want to figure out where you are. I want to try to find you. I want to connect with you. I want to figure out how to continue to sort of weave this tapestry together. So here is pretty much the um, the schedule and the driving line that I'm taking. I'm starting off in Newark. I'm landing there. <laughs> I'm landing on the cheapest flight that we could find. I'm coming with my whole family, by the way. Um, my two big kids are going to be off on missions uh, in America. One is going to be in Israel, joining us a little bit later. So my little team is going to be with us, four children traveling. And then we're crossing the United States from like New York, around that Virginia, that kind of Northeast area. And we're going to cross all the way over to Colorado. And so anyone that is in between that area in Colorado, I want to see you. That's a lot. I don't mind driving a little bit north, going up to Ohio, a little bit south to Kentucky, coming across Illinois, Missouri. I'm happy. You just let me know where you are. Send me an email. We'll have a parlor meeting in your home. We'll have a fellowship in person. I just want to continue to build. And then from Colorado, I'm driving down to Texas. And then from Texas, we're going all the way down to Miami. And then we're flying out. And so that's a lot. And I'm, I'm looking at Krista and I'm like crushed that I'm not going to California. I'm going to make it to the West Coast also. And one day where, because there's so many people on the West Coast, but like, I just, there's, I mean, it's so big and the flight is to Newark, but I'm going to make it to the West Coast. Please God, that's going to happen. That's my next trip to America is going to be not the East Coast in the middle, but the West Coast to the middle. And then I'm going to absolutely come and visit all of our dear friends in Washington and Oregon and, and just that whole side of it. It's just, the country is so big. The world is so big. But the Arugot Farm is open for business. 
people from the fellowship are starting to come. That was the one I wanted to tell you about. That's what happened this week. This week was so, Ari and I learned so much from this week. It was like two lessons that were juxtaposed to each other so powerfully were so profound that it gave us an absolute direction of what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. And so I'm just going to tell you the two stories in a nutshell. On Monday, we're at the very last week of our campaign. And so I'm on a focus. Our goal is to raise as much money as possible to build the Arugot farm. I get a phone call from this tour guide that I've never worked with before. It says, I have a multi-gazillion dollar family that's coming from Los Angeles and they want to come and see the Arugot farm, but they want you to put on a show for them. They want a zip line and they want all you can eat ice cream and they want brand new towels and they want a, a horse ride and a tractor ride and a Jeep in the desert. They want live music. They want a gourmet chef. And I'm like, I, I mean, I, our electrical infrastructure is barely like, I don't know if we can pull this off. It's like, well, that's what they want. And I'm like, I guess this is being sent to us. I guess Ari and I will try to do this. I, we've never done this before, but I guess if that's what they want, I like kind of priced it out. I'm like, I guess that'll be like, I don't know. They asked for so many. I only give you a small list of the details that they wanted. Like they knew what they wanted and I did my very best to fulfill. They wanted fireworks at the end of the night. I'm like, you want fireworks? I was like, I might set off a war in Israel. I don't know, like, is that even allowed in Judea and Samaria? Like, if they want it, I'll try. And so we had hosted this family and they were the most wonderful people. I love them. But that's not what we do on the Arugot farm. Our Arugot farm is not Disneyland with fireworks and zoo lines. That's just not what we do. But I was like, well, if they're going to pay us to do it, I'm in the middle of, how could I say no? It seemed almost immoral to say no. They're going to help us with our campaign. I'll do whatever they want. We want fireworks. I'll get you fireworks. You want a zip line? I'll make you a zip line. I don't know. I guess we'll just try to figure it out. So this family from LA came and Ari and I are running a zip line. Like, oh, that is not what Ari and I are supposed to be doing. Clearly, we're not supposed to be running a zip line on our farm. Like, I no. But in, in, like at the end of the day, they absolutely loved me and Ari because how can you not love Ari? But their experience of like Disneyland, we're not Disneyland. And so the expectation and what happened was just not a good fit. And so we learned not to do that anymore. And I think probably if I kind of cost it out, we probably lost money on that day because the gourmet chef and the live music and all of the things that we did there, ended up costing more than what we charged. I'm like, oh, we are just not doing that ever again. We know, okay, and I was like, lesson learned. At the end of the day, I was like, I felt like a circus monkey trying to do all of these tricks for these people. And I'm like, it was just a disaster. And then the next day, two couples from our fellowship came. Lisa and Dan Gerard, the Romano family came. They didn't ask for anything. They just wanted some time in the mountains of King David. And then we had a little bonfire outside our house and Ari made some chicken wings. And then friends of mine from Texas came and we all just were together in fellowship. It was just the most beautiful thing that could have been in the world. It didn't cost us more than the chicken wings. You know, it was just, and of course, everyone there blessed us beyond measure in their presence and in their giving and like, Clearly, that's what we're supposed to do. We didn't need fireworks and we didn't need all of the fancy Jeep rides and all you can eat ice cream. It was just like ridiculous. And so 
now we know a little bit better about what we're supposed to do. But sometimes, you know, we're taken on a mission where it really felt like if I'm able to raise money for this campaign, I'm ready. To, I'll do whatever needs to be done. You want me to be a circus monkey, Hashem? I will be a circus monkey, whatever needs to be done here. But I learned from that, we're really not meant to be circus monkeys. We're stewards of this land. We are the priests of this land. We're meant to just bless the people, teach the people like the priests did in the temple. So we're the priests of this land. We're meant to bless and to teach. That's what we're here to do. And so just in those groups literally came one day after the other. And it was could not have been a more stark difference between the two. And so we just got a little bit more insight into what we should do, which is what we always do. And what we shouldn't do, never again, is pretty much was the end of that day. It was like, okay, learned our lesson. I got it. Um, and then I wanted to tell you just one more story. And then I'm going to let Ari give his Torah because I know he has a beautiful thing to say. Um, I just wanted to share this one story that happened to me on Shavuot. Because Shavuot, you know, we couldn't talk. We couldn't meet. It's the holiday. We're all doing our own thing. And we can't even use electricity here in Israel. And I... Uh, a Saturday morning, right before Shavuot, you know, I'm thinking about King David. In our tradition, it's King David's birthday. That's what we're told. And we're about to celebrate the king's birthday. And I'm in his mountains, in his caves. And Shabbat morning, I take the sheep out to pasture. I try to take them also Friday morning, but sometimes the world doesn't allow me to. So that's what I, I always want to do Friday, but I must do Saturday. And musts always get done. And what I want to sometimes gets done and sometimes doesn't. But Shabbat, I let my shepherdesses and my shepherds there on break. And that is the joy of my week. There's nothing I enjoy more is taking our sheep out to pasture. My son, Noam, usually my daughter, and will not come out with me. Five, six years old, nine years old, I'm teaching them to shepherd sheep, to fly, to be with it in the mountains. I just, it is the highlight of my week. I love it. So I'm taking our sheep out with my son, Noam. And we're out for four hours. And Noam is in the first grade. And I'm a pretty good talker. But it's hard to make four hours of conversation with a first grader. I mean, there's only so much we can talk about. So Noam and I have all these games that we play together. So, you know, we have, we'll, we'll throw rocks at a bottle and we'll do different things. And I had this great idea. So you know what? I'm going to bring the baseball gloves this time. I'll bring the baseball gloves. So I put the baseball glove and the baseball back in, in my in my backpack. I have like a black backpack that I take out. It has the food, the water. It has all that I need just uh, four hours in the desert. You know, you need a few things, a Band-Aid just in case. Anyway, I put baseball gloves in the back of my bag. We're walking around the mountains. And it's a pretty far hike because we wanted to go to the northern part past Ibehanaha, past the little village to us because we heard that sometimes some of the Arab shepherds were sort of harassing them from the north. And if we're there on the northern side of the community, no one's coming there because we're there and that's our grazing grounds and they would respect that. So Shabbat morning, the entire community is in the synagogue and we are guarding the people of Israel with our sheep. And of course, you know, only God would use sheep to guard his people and to guard his land. The most docile, the most sweet creature, the most peaceful creature are the guardians of the land. And that's just marvelous. So we're out with our sheep and we've already been out for quite a while. So I pull out my baseball glove and say, hey, no, let's let's throw the ball together. You know, because I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and I just absolutely loved the Atlanta Braves when I was a kid. And even still in Israel, I still wear my Atlanta Braves hat and I'm really happy it has an A on it. And so it's like Arugot. It's like the A for Atlanta, the A for Arugot. For me, that's a little bit of a spice cart. So I just wear that Atlanta Braves out whenever I can. And I just, I grew up playing baseball. I love baseball. So I'm out with Noam. I'm teaching him how to throw the ball. We're throwing the baseball back and forth. And I'm looking at myself and I have like this moment, like, has this ever been done before? I mean, throwing the ball with your boy is like as Americana as you get. It's like throwing the ball. You know, it's like, 
What is more American than that? And I grew up in Atlanta, but I'm out in the mountains of King David on the day before King David's birthday with our flock of sheep in David's grazing grounds, throwing the baseball with my son. It's like, this is, it was just a moment. And I was like, okay, that's just really marvelous and beautiful that somehow like a God is just weaving these amazing tapestries that have never been woven together before. And I'm like having my own happy time. And we go back and I don't think twice of it. Tehillah goes over to give over a class to the Jewish village over Shavuot because Tehillah is the greatest teacher in the world. And of course, they beg her to come and teach. So of course she does, because that's what she does. They don't ask me to teach. I'm fine. They ask Tehillah to come and teach. So Tehillah, she's the star. She goes out and she teaches the women there. And um, one of the women came up to her and said, I just couldn't believe it. I was watching. Someone just text me, take your slingshot. I have a Glock 17. That's sort of my modern day slingshot. That's like, that's always the way, at least that I saw it. Like David had a slingshot. I have a Glock. That's sort of how we live. And so um, Tila goes off into the, uh, or a Glock. And so Tila goes off into the village and one of the women comes up to him and says, you know, I was looking outside and I saw the flock of sheep and I was sure oh, the Arabs are coming to harass us again. And I said, oh no, it's, it's your husband. I'm like, oh, that's so nice that he's here protecting us so we can go to Shul. That's really nice of him. And then I look closer and I'm like, what does he do? Is he throwing a baseball with his son? I and she was so. I was like, I, I, Mashiach. I really felt like Mashiach must have arrived to see someone be throwing a baseball with their son, with the sheep in the mountains of Judea after the ingathering of the exile. She, I, I didn't know she was looking at us. I was just throwing the ball with my boy. And for me, it was also like a beautiful moment. But the inspiration that it brought to this woman that saw us kind of through the, her living room window over out in the mountains, that had just never been a, a sight seen before. And I was like, if she only knew that these sheep were sponsored by people from all around the world that have helped build this Arugot farm together, her mind would absolutely be blown. And literally, does she know? how soon Mashiach is coming and how much a part of it, all of us are in it. And so I just wanted to tell you that story because I don't think that there has been a father and son throwing a baseball with his Judean sheep sponsored by a fellowship around the world in the mountains of Judea ever. And so we are just doing marvelous things in the world. Okay, those are the stories. Those are the updates. So update number one, we nailed the cause match campaign. Thank you all. Bless you all. The speaking tour is the next mission. If you want to know, just email me, WhatsApp me, jeremy at thelandofisrael.com is an email. You have my WhatsApp number. If you don't, ask Tabitha. She'll give it to you. And now I want to introduce you to Ari, and he is going to hopefully connect us even deeper to the word. So Ari, here you go. Shalom, Jeremy. Shalom, everybody. Good to see you. Um, Jeremy, just to let you know, Mark and Lori say that you are talking too fast. You're talking as fast as Tehillah. And that's fast because we both know her brain is a supercomputer microchip. Um, but anyways, you know, <clears throat> there, that was a moment Jeremy was talking about throwing the ball and with the sheep. And there were just, uh, there's a lot of moments. <clears throat> some of them are beautiful moments. Some of them are challenging moments. And as Jeremy said, that family we had out that was going to pay us all these thousands of dollars. We're like, oh, we're going to be rich. Let's do whatever we have to do. The fireworks, the circus monkey. And everybody knows I'm the circus monkey, not Jeremy. So let's just have that clear. Um, but we had good intentions. <clears throat> and, and there were a lot of silver linings to that day because I feel like Hashem blesses our farm so much. The 99.999% of trips people have out here are just magical and uplifting. And this one, I felt like we were just falling on our face time after time. And I felt like Hashem was definitely telling us, even while it was happening, I was like, something is happening here. But there were a lot of silver linings because you know, when you're, a, when you're in the army 
and you're a sharpshooter, you're just an M16, right? You're trying to calibrate your weapon. So you shoot at this target. And if you're a good shot, the bullets all end up right around each other, right near each other. And then you compare that to where they're supposed to be, where they're supposed to land. And then you say, okay, three dot notches to the right, two to the to the, the two down and now we're there. If you're a good shot, you don't even need to shoot again. You just make the adjustments and you're there. And that's what I felt like happened with us. Um, we just, we got calibrated from the first time we dropped, we fell on our face and that made the whole day worth it. And I even told this family, I was like, you could have had the most beautifully polished tourism experience, or you could be part of bringing us closer to understanding who we are and what we're supposed to be about. And in that you share in the, in the, in the merit of the, of what we're doing here. And they were just so sweet and, and forgiving. And they were able to tell us the brutal truth without being, um, you know, without getting us down, like they were still sweet and encouraging and uplifting. So that was a blessing in and of itself. But, um, but anyways, so, you know, that was, that was really a powerful experience. And I feel like we're going to benefit from that a lot. But anyways, let, let me just dive in because it really feels like it's been a, a lot. We really missed a lot of time together. I agree with Jeremy, my, my week is different when we're not together. And so we had Shav, uh, Shabbat followed by Shavuot on Sunday. So we missed the last fellowship. So a lot, many of you have reached out and told me about your Shavuot experience uh, in personal communications, which I love. And if you haven't shared yet, I would, I would love to hear. But I want to take this opportunity to share with you about mine because it was, uh, it was definitely the most unique Shavuot I've ever had. And while I was bracing as I went into it for it to possibly be the least spiritual, looking back, I see that without a question, it was the most spiritual. Uh, so usually on Shavuot, right, every single year I can remember since I was a boy, I was up all night learning Torah. And this year, Shana and I, we really did have great plans. We were going to the nearby settlement of Efrat, and we were going to stay with close friends, we'd, uh, uh, you know, in their little guest house. And we had these different Torah classes lined up and meals lined up with good friends that we don't often get to see. And we were unusually excited about it. And then, as you know, my father was hospitalized. And it, it, it was taking different scary turns. And, uh, and going into Shavuot and Shabbat, I, I realized I was going to be by my father's side in the hospital in Jerusalem. Uh, my mother could have possibly done it, my sister, but I realized I was really the best fit for this. And he was in such a delicate situation that we couldn't leave him for a moment. So I didn't attend services and I didn't go to Torah classes at all. There were even times where like, I didn't know, should I violate Shabbat or, or the holiday for this? He wanted like his bed adjusted a little bit. That's not really to save his life. Should I violate Shabbat for that? And I just decided, you know what? For my father's comfort, I'm willing to throw away my entire world to come. And it felt right and it felt true. And anything he wanted me to do, anything, I was there to do that for him. And, uh, you know, I slept when he slept. And I was, uh, I was able to get away and lie down at nighttime. But I was in the hospital the whole time. Uh, the whole time with him. And I needed to be energized and alert throughout the day to help him. So I needed to sleep for every moment of the night that I could. So there was no all night learnathon for me. And in the hours leading up to Shavuot, I realized that, uh, you know, most of the time Shavuot is about learning Torah all night, but this Shavuot would not be about learning Torah, right? It would be about, about living Torah, about living the Ten Commandments, about living the commandments of honor thy father and mother. And I wouldn't trade the time I had with my father over Shavuot for all, all the money in the world. 
for all the money in the world, the moments that I had, because in the moments of Torah learning and just conversing and being together that we had without devices, without distractions, when he was like aware and, and conscious and alert, the moments we did have together, I really felt the Shekhinah between us. We really, there was so much healing. There was so much light. There was so much, there, there, was, there was laughter. There were tears, tears between me and my father. It was really powerful on a personal level. I felt like I was finally, finally able to be the son for him that he deserves. I, I never felt like I was able to really come anywhere near to the level of honor I owe him compared to the incredible father he's always been uh, and continues to be and may continue to be for many more years to come. Just the father that he is for me. And I'm so grateful that when that opportunity presented itself, that I grasped it firmly, right? With, with, with both hands and, and I didn't let it go. And I'm grateful that Hashem blessed me with the awareness and the acceptance to embrace this new, different experience, this unexpected situation um, and to, to grasp it rather than to resist it or God forbid to miss it altogether due to a lack of spiritual flexibility or a predetermined and preconceived expectations of the way things should be, right? Those expectations that we often make into idols and cause us to miss out on the beautiful opportunities of life. I could have been like, yo, my mother will be with him. My sister will be with him. They'll figure it out. And then I'll really step up next week. I'll step up next week once I've strengthened myself by studying Torah all night or something like that. I could see having those thoughts. And, and I think in truth, you know, that, that, that's one of the great themes of this week's Torah portion. You know, we see in the Parsha the complexity of the camp, right, of the tribes of Israel when they would move from one stop to another stop throughout the desert. The cloud would move, right, indicating that it's time to get up and move. And we're talking about three million people. Right, the Kohanim would blast their chatzot these loud blasts, short blasts, different combinations of blasts that indicated to do different things. You know, it's complicated just getting your family out of the house. When I think about Jeremy's upcoming speaking tour, I'm like, how do they do it? They have six kids and they're going throughout America. It's a lot, right? Just imagine the complications involved in his family, let alone three million people, and the the detailed instructions of how to deconstruct and transport and reconstruct it's a lot you know that you you've read the torah portion you know what went into it so my friend micha hyman brought this verse to my attention so really the credit goes to him but he pointed out that the key verse that we need to focus on in this portion and really in our lives this verse is, is one of the keys to to happiness one of the greatest keys to really being happy in our lives and serving god with all of our hearts it's in this torah portion in chapter 9 verse 18 says, Al pi Hashem Yisu B'nei Yisrael v'al pi Hashem Yachnu. At the commandment of the Lord, the people of Israel journeyed, and at the commandment of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud abode upon the tabernacle, they rested in their tents. Right? By the word of Hashem's mouth, it was time to camp. And by Hashem's word, it was time to move. And you know, as we know from chronicling their journeys, there were 42 different encampments, 42 stops. And the founder of Hasidut, right, the Baal Shem Tov, he says that we each have 42 different encampments in the journeys of our lives. 42 different times that we need to pick up, that we need to uproot everything, not only our possessions, often not our possessions at all, but our expectations, our firmly held beliefs of the way things are supposed to be, right? 42 different stops that we each have in our lives, different relationships maybe, or jobs or missions or purposes, I don't know. 
42 different sets of expectations. That's the best way I can sort of bring it together. And as the text tells us, there were times that they were in, the, in a camp for one day. One day, right? Sometimes a week, a month, a year. One of the stops in the desert was 19 years, right? If you were born on the first day of that encampment, that one stop was your entire life until you're nearly of army age. You could even be skeptical that you were traveling at all. Maybe you just arrived your whole life. You're in that one stop or one day, right? We said there one day, imagine that unpacking everything and setting up the camp in the most exhaustive and exhausting and precise way. And then the next day, the trumpets blast and it's time to undo it all and move on without having any idea why. Right, the degree of self-nullification to embrace this journey, I mean, it must have been immense. Although the more I think about it, I'm not sure it's any more immense than the self-nullification that each of us need to go through in the journey of our own lives with the level of surrender to Hashem that we, that we need to have. I don't know, I've just, as I was thinking about this and going through this Parsha and this idea, I was thinking about so many of you and the pain and the expectations and the grief and the challenges and how you've just inf you know infused it with faith on this journey just intuitively filling it with faith but it's it's hard you know it's hard it's that one day you're that one stop but uh, but they really in the desert they had to feel in the most real way that they were the sheep and hashem was the shepherd and uh, and this Rav Micha, you know he was sharing is one of the deepest reasons for human pain right hashem knows where we're supposed to be and when we're supposed to be there and when it's time to move on. And often we don't want to. We're scared, right? We're scared or we're not ready. And, uh, and we really, this is something we shouldn't be ashamed of it. It's part of the human condition. It's part of the way we're wired. But this is so much of where our pain comes from. But the journey through the desert really is no less of a lesson to us than it was to them. Because sometimes we become married to a particular idea, to a particular situation, to a, a specific perspective or philosophy. And we don't want to move on because we're married to this thing, right? We, we have it figured out. We finally have it figured out. We finally made sense of this thing and now everything is gonna change, right? You know, often, quite often, quite often, that which we hold dearest and most attached to is exactly what we're called upon to leave behind. The degree of self-nullification, right, of, of emunah, right, of faith and of bitachon, of trust, is so immense, and that's what's demanded of us. That's the greatness of the opportunity, these stops on our journey, however scary or jarring or challenging they may be for us, that is the opportunity for us not to be married to these or those ideas or perspectives or expectations, but to be married only to Hashem. That's why a lot of the songs over Shavuot that we sing are saying to the Sheva Brachot, the, the songs of the wedding, because it's really a wedding where we are married to Hashem on Shavuot. For, for us to do what Hashem wants us to do and to go where Hashem wants us to go, even if we have to unpack and repack it and one day we'll do it. That's the muscle that the journey of our lives and, the, and our journey through the desert builds within us, the muscle of trust and the muscle of faith. And we even see this muscle being built up really through the through this portion, through failure after failure, on the on the journey itself, right? We see in this Torah portion. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna I was gonna share a lot of them, but I don't have the time, and I don't want to eat up Jeremy's fellowship. But we see this with the mitonini, right? The complainers, 
who had the chutzpah, the audacity to complain against Moshe and really against Hashem, that they wanted meat and they missed Egypt. They no longer wanted the holy manna, the holy food Hashem provided them with. They were so attached to the idea of the meat of Egypt. They were so married to this concept of the melons and the leeks of their servitude that they didn't have the eyes or the trust or the faith to embrace the reality that Hashem was blessing them with and the idols of their own expectations. And again, my friends, this is not to judge them, right? We have all been there. I know that I have. I still go there sometimes. But that's what the journey is all about. It's about growth. Growth quite often from failure, from falling on our faces again and again and again, but never to stop getting up and seeking Hashem again with all of our hearts and all of our souls, reaching higher, uh, standing atop of our countless pile of failures. So, all right, Jeremy Dore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind it together here because there's a lot more examples of this in, in the Torah portion from Miriam speaking about Moses to, uh, but anyways, just throughout, throughout the desert of uh, their journey and throughout the desert of our lives, throughout the entire Torah portion, throughout the whole Torah, all of Jewish history, our history, this is what it's all about. By the word of Hashem, we travel, and by the word of Hashem, we encamp. And I'm just so grateful that Hashem gave me the eyes going into Shavuot. He gave me the eyes and the consciousness and the awareness to embrace the opportunity, to discard my predetermined expectations because I did have moments of, of, of doubt, not real doubt, but really little bits of doubt in between Shana, who strongly confirmed what I knew in my heart, even though that meant that uh, she, these great plans that she was excited about would be canceled and she would now be with a toddler and an infant without my help. And Jeremy, right, confirming that the decision to be in the hospital was, what did you say, Jeremy, is definitely not the decision you'll regret. If you make any decision, you won't regret that one. That's what Jeremy told me. Sometimes he says a thing and it just pierces my heart. But ultimately, I felt that in my heart too. And I want to bless us all that we should internalize this truth, that ultimately we are married to Hashem and Hashem alone, that all of our preconceived notions and expectations are okay, right? We're human. But the moment they conflict with what Hashem actually gives us in our lives, we're able to discard them and move on to the next stop that Hashem has in store for us. And it's not always easy. It's never easy. But when we try to follow Hashem with all of our hearts, he often gives us the eyes to see how perfect this new stop is for us in our journey and how without it, we would never be able to achieve the greater level of closeness to Hashem that really our journey in this world is all about. So anyways, thank you so much, my friends, for your blessings and prayers and support and being there for me and my family every step of the way. My father is actually miraculously getting really better He's really, really getting better. And I have, it's miracles. Like he wasn't able to walk for four months. Now he can stand up and take steps. Uh, I told him in the prayers in the morning, who straightens the bend. Thank you, Hashem, who straightens the bend. That's you. He said that to you. My father said, believe me, that blessing has been in my mind and my heart. And, and so may we continue, my friends, to, to hold each other up as we journey through the different stops in the, in the desert journey of our lives. Love you all so much, and thank you so much, and thank you, Jeremy. Wow, Ari, thank you so much. That's just so beautiful to hear. You're just a living example of just walking in faith, living in faith, ups and downs, and everyone's got them, and you're just so transparent, and you're so real, and just everyone around the world, everyone that knows you loves you. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, and the truth is, it, it, it's a segue. I'm going to talk a lot slower now. 
Why? Because I was trying to get it all in. I wanted to tell you about that funny story of the circus monkey. And I wanted to tell you guys about Noam and the baseball. And I knew, I just wanted to give you guys all of the updates about my upcoming speaking tour to the United States and how we can connect. And I also wanted to go at least begin learning the book of Joshua, like in the text. But now I realize there's no way I'm going to accomplish all of it. I was trying, <laughs> but that's okay. Hashem knows what he's doing. We're going to go stage by stage. And really what Ari said now is the ultimate introduction to the book of Joshua, because the book of Joshua is the transition where the people of Israel, they really had to surrender. They had to just let go and let God. That's why I learned that sentence from Tehillah. You just got to let go and let God. Sometimes you have to surrender. If they want me to travel, I hear the trumpets blowing. Time to travel. Okay, I thought we were going to stay a little bit longer. Nope, time to go. I thought we were going to keep on traveling. No, it's time to stop. But in the book of Joshua, there, a transition happens where you no longer surrender, but you have to go out and conquer. You have to go out to war. You have, you're being called to a mission. You're being called to fulfill a promise. You're going into the promised land. And in order to achieve your destiny, you're going to have to sort of get on your fighting you know, gloves and get in the rink and go off and fight. And so what is the balance there? And really the entire book of Joshua, that is the thread of transitioning from action, faith, living with God as nothing changed. You're still living Alpi Hashem. You're still living by the word of God. You're still living by his guidance, by your intuition, by walking in his ways. But there's a balance where it's no longer a surrender. Sometimes you have to go out to battle to inherit the land. And I remember years ago, Ari taught me a, an amazing um, equation that I literally use until today. Um, and you guys, you, you know us so well. You know, I wrote a song because when we were moving to the farm and I had to sell my home and I had to put my children on that mountaintop there. And for the first year, we were alone up there. And that was scary as can be. That was scarier than the three wars Ari and I served in in the Gaza Strip. It was terrifying. All of our money was on that mountain. It was under threat of being knocked down by the Supreme Court. There was terrorism threats. There was just, it was beyond. And um, this melody came to me when I was learning uh, or praying the Kriyachma. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your might. And Bechol Me'odecha doesn't mean might. That's only one of the proper translations for that word. But to love God with everything you got with your money, with your possessions, with your family, with your time, with your strength, with your might. And sometimes you got to like get in there and give it all you got. Well, what about surrendering to God? Why do I have to give anything all I got? I just want to surrender. I'll just stay and God has a plan. And there's a really delicate balance there. And it's a real faith walk of when do we really exert ourselves to inherit the land? And when do we let go and let God? And so the equation that Ari taught me is that really you give 100% effort and you have 100% faith. And how do you allow those two things to live in coexistence? You push as hard as you need to push if you believe that's what God needs you to do in this world. But as soon as you start feeling anxious, upset, resentful, disappointed, angry, whoa, you're pushing way too hard. That means you got to let go and let God. You push as hard as you can, and Baruch Hashem, sometimes Hashem will give us strength to really push hard, 
But if you keep on pushing and you start feeling imbalanced, that's an emotional guidance system, a spiritual GPS system. That means you're pushing too hard. It means that you've lost your element of faith and you've gone too much into action. So you want to be full-blown action, full-blown faith. So you give it as hard as you got, but as long as you're lit up, excited, and you're happy, and you're moving forward, push as hard as you need to push. But as soon as you're pushing and your effort and your exertion starts creating discomfort, an imbalance, anxiety, depression, resentment, all of those bad feelings. You know, we got the light feelings and the dark feelings. There's light and, and darkness. As soon as you start feeling the darkness from your actions, that's an immediate sign that you need to surrender a little bit. Don't push as hard. It's okay. Hashem, it's good for you to push. Hashem wants you to be a part of his mission in the world. He wants you to participate in the promise. That is literally the ultimate message of Joshua. He's going to make miracles in our lives, and he wants us to participate and be partners with him in his miracles, but to let go. If you're already starting to feel like, wait, do you really believe that it's these hands that are going to do it? No, no, no. Push, but until you start feeling aligned, as long as you're aligned and you're 100% action, 100% faith, and you feel like both of those are running full speed ahead, that's when you know you're aligned with the way Joshua conquered the land of Israel. And so thank you, Ari, for that. That was really an amazing introduction for how to bring us into the book of Joshua. But before I enter into the book of Joshua, I need to give a, um, a like, it's, it's like a meta, it's like an introduction to learning prophets, because we can't go directly into the text of the prophets of Israel without first really understanding why we're learning the prophets of Israel, what the Bible is all about. I mean, you know, we're told that everyone has their own letter in the Torah. And what that's really teaching us is that there are aspects and different dimensions of the biblical tradition. And everyone has the part in the biblical tradition that really speaks to them the most. They have like their chalik in the Torah. Like you have your own piece of land around your house. That's your land. You have a little place in the Torah, a little piece that's really special to you. Some people, it's the book of Psalms. Some people, it's just one or two Psalms. Some, it's a certain Torah portion. Some, it's a certain book. And so for me, I don't know why I love what I love. And I think about it a lot. Why do I love the land of Israel so much? Where did that come from? I mean, Ari and I, many, many years ago, it's just like the land of Israel.com, the land of Israel fellowship. We just love the land of Israel. I, who put that love in my heart? I, some people like the NFL. I love the land of Israel. I don't know. But I love the prophets. I love the prophets of Israel. I love the Bible. What can I do? I don't know why I love what I love, but that is my chalik in the Torah. I love the prophets of Israel. And so I'm thrilled that finally after two years, our fellowship is going to be learning the prophets together. I really feel like that is my unique contribution that I'm able to give to the world, my unique love that I have for the world. Because many years ago, I was taught, if you really want to give over a love of Torah, or a love of Judaism, or a love of your faith tradition, you want to give over a love to someone else that's distant from it, that you want to bring closer to God, closer to the land, what you need to do is find what excites you about that, and then share that excitement with others. And so what excites me about my life in Israel is the Bible. It is the prophets of Israel and how we are living a manifestation of these incredible dreams and visions and stories and how they all align to guide us toward our personal destinies, toward our national destinies, toward our international destinies, like what a book. And so what I want to do before we actually enter into the text of Joshua is I have to give over sort of a meta view 
a meta class, a meta session of an introduction to studying the prophets. And I want to give over just, this is a very short clip, but I felt like Dr. Jordan Peterson was really able to say this well. And I didn't want to say his words, but I feel like his words are just spot on about the importance of the Bible, the truth of the Bible, the foundational, like there is no book more important ever. <laughs> There's no book that's deeper. There's no book that has impacted the world more. And I just want you to hear this small part of one of the lectures that he gave um, as he was just talking about the Bible, because I feel like he said it in such an articulate way. So as an introduction, here's just a short clip for you. The Bible is true in a very strange way. What you do as an educated person is sample that structure that constitutes the sum total of, of the texts of our civilization. If you mapped out the relationships between all the books that there are, you'd find that the most fundamental book is the biblical library. And I think that's even merely true historically. It's partly why the museum of the Bible was so interesting to me, because walking through it, you see how the books were, how the book aggregated itself across time and became fundamental. And the first book that was really widely available for purchasing, for printing, purchasing, and reading was the Bible, and all the books that we know about now, the millions of books that we have, emerged from that base, that trunk, and they're all related to that. And it's certainly possible that without an understanding of that fundamental book, you can't understand all the other books. And maybe it's possible that without an understanding of that book, you can't understand other people. So, you know, to be people of the book means that we're all inhabited by the same book, or, but it's probably more complicated than that. Like, it's not just the Bible, because there's lots of books. It's the biblical corpus, which is a library, and it's the relationship between all the texts in that book to one another. And then it's the whole structure of the relationship between all the texts that grew out of that. And you, you could imagine a map of that. And then you could imagine that what you do as an educated person is sample that. And so there's this structure that constitutes the sum total of, of the texts of our civilization. And then there's you as an agent that needs to understand that structure. But you can't read all the texts, obviously, because how much time do you have? Nowhere near enough time to do that. You have to sample it in a way, though, that gives you an understanding of the let's say of the gist of it, something like that. And so, and maybe the best way to do that in a fundamental sense is to become familiar with the biblical writings per se, and then to move on to other literary forms from that. And Perfect. Thank you for cutting it off right there. I was nervous that you weren't gonna do that. That's exactly where I wanted that video to stop. What, I, that, what Jordan Peterson is teaching there is that the first book that was brought to the world was the Bible for who knows how many decades, centuries, that's the only book that there was. And so all of the other literary things that came out of that were out of years of just studying because the Bible isn't one book, it's a library of books. There's the Torah, five books of Moses. 
there's the prophets, there's the minor prophets, the latter prophets, then there's the writings. There's, and I mean, there's so much there in everything in Western civilization emerged from this foundation. It's the foundation, it's the world as we know it. It is the moral fabric um, that the world was created through speech. That's what the Bible says, that God spoke existence and that's teaching us something really deep. The world around us is made up of information. And if computers are made of one and zeros, then the world and the civilization around us are made up of the letters and the ideas of the Bible itself. And so learning the Bible is learning everything about who we are, why we are, how we arrived here, why we see the world the way we do, how this, out of this chaos and turmoil of this horrible world with child sacrifice and barbarians and Vikings and all these things that were so removed from morality and goodness emerged like a world of progress and freedom. And we freed the slaves because we, the people of Israel were slaves once, knew that injustice and we brought freedom to the world. All, you know, a lot of the left-wing seculars, which I'm going to get to in just a little bit, they say, oh, the founders of America, they were biblical people. They owned slaves. Every single person that fought for the freedom of slavery were all inspired by the Bible. It actually started in England. There's an amazing book called Amazing Grace that talks about the story of how the idea to emancipate all slaves in the world all came from people inspired by the Bible because all men are created in the image of God. It didn't matter what your skin color was. You have a soul. You're of God. And how the Bible just, okay. And so, okay, my computer is speaking to me. <laughs> and so, you know, all of us were born into this world and our children are being born into this civilization and they have no idea that the foundation of everything that they have around them is the Bible. Our values, our assumptions, our political systems, our human rights, all of this we take for granted. And the first and only book, the ideas that spread across Western civilization. And so if we really understand and we go deeper into the Bible, if we wrap around like if we wrap our minds around that, then the whole world will make a lot more sense to us. The whole world will become a lot more beautiful. And right now in Israel, there's a phenomenon that there's, everyone's trying to understand what is going on. What is this right and left in America? What is this right and left in Israel? What is the common thread there? What makes someone right and what makes someone left? I mean, there's a political party in Israel called the right wing party, Yamina, and they've made a left wing coalition. So I don't, what is that? What is the, what do those words mean? Because people know I'm on the right, I'm a Republican, I'm on the left, I'm a Democrat, and I'm on the right in Israel. And somehow the right are aligned in Israel and in America and the left are aligned. And how, what, what is that? And so I'm going to give away a little bit of the secret. It all boils down. Well, I don't want to give away the secret just yet. First, I want to just share with you some of the ideas because they're fascinating. So Avishai ben Chaim, Dr. Avishai ben Chaim, says that what's happening in Israel is that there's two layers of society. There is an elite Ashkenazi European Jewish society that were the first people that came to Israel. And then the ingathering of Israel started to happening. There's religious Jews, there's Sephardic Jews, and really the battle in Israel is actually an interracial battle between Ashkenazi elites and the sort of Sephardic believing simple people below. And I'm like, that's a pretty interesting, and you can like, there's a, definitely a divide within the Jewish people, and that's what he thinks, that's the whole divide, and that's his theory, Israel, first Israel and second Israel, there's like a first class of Israeli Jews and a second class of Israeli Jews, and that's still the truth even in 2020. 
And so I'm like, okay, that's an interesting theory. And there's probably, obviously, everyone is more comfortable with their own. And people in the South are used to speaking with a Southern drawl. And people in the North are, okay, so there's always going to be differences. But I don't think that really explains the difference between right and left. I mean, Netanyahu is the leader of the right. And he's an Ashkenazi European, like from a European descent. Like, it doesn't really make sense. But it's okay. It's a good theory. Then there's another theory um, by a journalist named Gadi Taub. And he says, no, the difference of right and left in the world are there are land-based people, Nayachim. They love the land. They're farmers. They're people that are connected. They're rooted in their land. And they're sort of like internet people that are nomadic, you know, traveling, cosmopolitan, international. They're kind of floaty people. And people that aren't connected to the land, like in middle America, they're connected to their land, like in Texas. They got guns. They got their land. They're on the right. And then the people that are sort of like in, in San Francisco, they're kind of floating around and they're happy to like work on their internet nomadic jobs. And they're not as connected. And it's really, are you connected to the land or not connected to the land? Are you international or are you national? And that's the division between right and left. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm working on the internet right now. I'm traveling around America. I don't know if, I don't, that, I mean, there's insight and that's an interesting thing that the connection to the land connects us deeper, but I don't know if that like explains all of the differences. I just, I don't know, people in Florida there, I, there, I mean, I don't know that Ron DeSantis, is he such a farmer? I don't know. I don't know. I just, there, but there's wisdom there. And I, and I appreciate that. Well, there's another journalist that says, you know what? It's about believers. Really, it all boils down to being a believer. If you're a believer, you're going to be on the right. In Israel, if you're a believer, you're going to be on the right in America. And if you're not a believer, you're going to be on the left. And that's pretty, like, that's, he's like, it's mominim and not mominim. You're a believer, you're not a believer. It's all about God. It really, the fundamental boils down to God. And I'm like, mm, I don't know if Donald Trump really is a deep believer. I don't know about that. And I know that, like, even Bibi Netanyahu, like, I don't know if he's a real believer. Like, I don't know. Does he really, like, if he's a believer in the Torah, is he really living? I don't know about that, but he's the leader. of. So, I mean, there's some truth to that also. And I want to share you my idea. And I really think that it's a little bit more nuanced, but I feel if you like follow the spectrum, there's a real insight here. And of course, it's not the complete answer because I don't know if there is a complete answer. But to me, after really listening and thinking about Jordan Peterson's insight there, that this whole world comes out of the Bible. Like all of our ideas and all of our political systems and all of Shakespeare's literature and all of the, it all emerged out of the influence of the foundation of the Bible. I think that that's actually what the divide between right and left is about. There are people that love the Bible, appreciate the Bible, respect the Bible. And there's people that hate the Bible, that resent the Bible. And in Israel, you can see it, it's really clear. There are people that love the Bible so much in Israel that they have followed every single rabbinical tradition to the point of, to me, it's almost absurdity. They're wearing big furry hats in the Middle East because they love the Bible so much that they just want to wear big furry hats in the Middle East on, in July. And they're going to wear those big furry hats out of their love of the Bible. And they are pretty much on the far right in Israel. And if you think about it, the people on the far left hate them the most. The inter the hatred between the far radical secular and the ultra-Orthodox Jews 
is much greater than Ashkenazi Sephardi. That's just, okay, it's there, but that's not really the spectrum. The deep ends of the spectrum begin with people that are so in love with the Bible, that love the Torah so much that they're happy to walk around looking absolutely ridiculous, wearing furry hats in the middle of July, just to show how they're ready to do it all for God if they need to. You want me to wear a furry hat, God? I'm going to wear a black furry hat and show you how much I love the Bible. And then all the way on the left, who hate those people the most are the people that like, ah, they understand either consciously or subconsciously, all of these values, all of this, it's all because of the Bible. I just hate that. I want to, I don't want a truth. I don't want a family. I don't want boys. I don't want girls. I just, this Bible, I hate it. And Bibi Netanyahu, he may not be a believer, but he loves the Bible. He established a weekly Bible class in the Knesset every week. He respects the Bible. He appreciates the Bible. Ben-Gurion was on the left, you know, at the very beginning of Israel, he was considered on the left. Today, Ben-Gurion would have been leading the right-wing camp. Why? He's more right-wing than almost every right-winger today. And why is that? Because he loved the Bible. The spectrum on which this divide, and it's amazing, you look in America as well. Donald Trump may not be a big believer, but he absolutely respects the Bible. He appreciates the wisdom. He appreciates the values. So much so his daughter converted to Judaism. She grew up in a place that absolutely respected the Bible. And so actually, if we really realize what is the divide between right and left in Western civilization today, it all goes down to the love or hate, respect or resentment of the Bible. And so if we really, if you believe that, and I think it's pretty, it's indisputable. I'm not saying that's the only thing, but I think that is a real fundamental way of understanding the entire political spectrum in America and the political spectrum in Israel. You want to point your finger at it? It will all go down. And who are the people in the middle? People that kind of like, they like the Bible. They don't really have an opinion about the Bible. They can kind of swing vote. They'll see like which candidate they like the most. And also in Israel, there's a lot of people that don't really have a very strong opinion about the Bible at all. They kind of lean towards liking it. And maybe they go to church once on Sunday and maybe, you know, and they're like, they're the, the middle of the road. People are exactly that. They don't really have a strong opinion. The more right you go, the more you love the Bible. And the more right you go, you'll see people that are like the the, the, the they call them Bible-thumping Christian, the Republicans. It's like so funny, but that's exactly what it is. So it's in some ways the spectrum that is defining our realities today or how we relate to the Bible. And if we see that, well, it's amazing because the Bible calls us to be a light unto the nations. And you see the enemies, they all wave black flags in Israel. It's On the left, the people that really don't like uh, the like the people in Judea and Samaria, the people that they're like, it's like they know, they know, oh, the Bible calls us to be a light. I'm wearing, I'm not, I'm the opposite of that. I'm going to wear a black flag. I'm going to wear, it's like, they do they even know? I don't know if it's conscious or subconscious, but if the Bible calls us to be lights, they're going to be darks. They're going to wave black flags. And so um, it becomes now not just um, an idea of spiritual development to learn the Bible, but it's a mission, and the mission is becoming more clear. We need to spread the love of the Bible with the world. We need to spread the love of Tanakh. We need to spread um, just to bring the world a little bit closer, because the closer that we get, I don't need people to believe like I believe. I don't think I don't think there's actually one person in this fellowship that believes the same as anyone. I think we all have different beliefs, but what brings all of us together is we all respect, honor, and really love the Bible. And the more we can spread that love and that honor and really give the Bible, it's just, there is so much wisdom to be gleaned. 
There is so transcendent. What is prophecy if not transcendent wisdom that speaks to generations that didn't have running water in societies that were made with child sacrifice that can speak so profoundly to a generation that is zooming on the internet internationally on 2022. And so it's a call to action. And the Land of Israel Fellowship is so unique because we're not just learning the Bible. This fellowship is living the Torah. It is living the prophecy as best as we can. We're living it out in this generation, and we've chosen to align ourselves with Scripture, align ourselves with the vision of the prophets, living aligned with a godly vision for our life, a godly vision for our family. And so we're not just a Bible study. There's nothing like this anywhere else in the world. And so our fellowship, and why am I going to the United States? It's a call to action. More and more people that study and appreciate and love and can respect the Bible. That's why I love Jordan Peterson so much. I don't believe as he believes, but he has brought so much new insight and respect and love of just learning the wisdom of the Bible. And that is the calling and the mission of this new series that we're starting as we enter into the prophets of Israel. And if we are going to give over one Torah about the book of Joshua, it's the first chapter. And with that, I want to bless you all over and over again, as we're called now to inherit the land of Israel. I mean, the whole Torah is the story of the journey to the land. Abraham walks, and then we, we come back, and we're, we're all trying to get to the promise. And then finally, the book of Joshua, we enter in. And it's like a transcendent level. And then God gives Joshua a blessing over and over again in the first chapter. You're going to inherit your promise now. You're going to have to act, and you're going to need strength, and you're going to need courage. Over and over again in the first chapter of Joshua, chazak ve'ematz, strength and courage. And so all of us in the land of Israel fellowship, we are all working to inherit the land of Israel in reality in Judea and in reality in our own lives. And so I want to bless all of you with strength and courage. And just as Joshua conquered the land and brought light to the world, so too you should conquer your land of Israel and follow your promise with strength and courage from Hashem. So you should be blessed. And in the next session, we're going to delve into the text. So Yevarechecha Adonai Veyishmerecha Yaer Adonai Panav Elecha Veyichonecha Isa Adonai Panav Elecha Veyasem Lecha Shalom. Goodbye, my dear fellowship. We'll see you next week. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.